Well, last week we had the the pleasure and the opportunity of, of studying and reading together John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, a rather large passage. And in John chapter 13, we learned uh, about the depth and the width of the great love that God has for us, which is really uh, demonstrated vividly in the ministry of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of this unit of thought, if you look with me at verse 17, we see that Jesus paves the path of blessing, which is found when we, as His people, obey Him. It says it like this, If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. It won't come as a shock to most of you to realize that not everyone will walk down this path of blessing. In fact, the Bible tells us that the gate is narrow and that few will travel on this path of blessing. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, a verse that we looked at in Veritas this morning. Many are called, few are chosen. See, Scripture clearly teaches that some, you see, will travel on this path of blessing. The rest will choose the path, tragically speaking, of judgment. The first book in the book of Psalms, I should say the first chapter in the book of Psalms, contrasts the way of the, the wicked with the way of the righteous. Read it with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The passage before us this morning as we move forward in John's gospel, like Psalm chapter 1, paints a very stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Let me tell you before we dig in this morning that this is a sobering passage. The passage before us this morning is not only sobering, it will in some detail reveal the seeds of a satanic plot. It will contain the seeds of betrayal, but it is also a passage that is very unique in the, in the way that it spells out the plans of a mighty and sovereign God. This passage is filled with a truth that has the power to make your faith blossom. But the path to blossoming faith, as we shall also find, is filled with pain. And it is filled with betrayal. I want to ask this question this morning. What does the path look like? My assumption is that if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are, you are interested in a blossoming faith. You are interested in having your faith grow and having your faith flourish. And so what does that path look like? What does it feel like? What will we experience along the way as we strive to be Christ followers who have a a faith that is growing, a faith that is expanding, a faith that is being challenged along the way? I want to ask a follow-up question, and it's probably a more important question. That is, where are you on that path this morning? Better yet, are you on that path yet? Are you traveling on the path of faith? Have you placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you placed your confidence and hope in Christ, the one who died on the cross for sinners, so that all your sin would be wiped away, so that all your guilt would be atoned for? 
Are you on that path? And for those of you who have been walking on that path, some of you have been on that path for a long time, haven't you? You've been walking that path, faithfully walking with your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are on that path, whether we're new to the Christian faith or whether we've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50, or even more years... I want to ask, what needs to happen next? At this juncture, because we're all in this together, are we not? At this juncture, what needs to happen next in your faith walk? Perhaps it will involve forgiving a person who hurt you. Perhaps it will involve forgiving a person who betrayed you. Or it may involve repenting of a habit that binds you. It may involve believing a doctrine that irritates you. After almost 25 years in the ministry, I have learned a rather sobering fact. There are many doctrines in sacred scripture that irritate people. And that's not the worst fact. The worst fact is that some people continue throughout their Christian lives being irritated by given doctrinal propositions. And it's time that we as the followers of Christ repent of that particular sin, that if a doctrine irritates us, that we say, Lord, I surrender. I don't fully understand it, but I give in to your truth. Or perhaps you're here today and you need to demonstrate obedience in an area that has been an ongoing struggle for you. Maybe it's a sin of the mind. Maybe it's a sin of the heart. Maybe it's a, a sin that you have been wrestling with for some time now. Whatever it is, once again, we are all on this path together if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John's Gospel in John chapter 13. And stand with me as we continue in our study of this passage in verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus continues his discussion with the disciples. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of what he spoke, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you want for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Father, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, may you help us to understand uh, what it means to walk on this path of faith. I pray that we would learn uh, some key lessons today from the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was always faithful in his ministry, and never had a, a thought that was sinful, uh, always had in mind uh, your glory and had the best interests of the people of God in mind as well. And so I pray that as we study this story together, that you would help us, that you would enable us by your spirit, and that we would benefit from this study together here in this place. For it's in your son's word, the name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Pathway to Blossoming Faith. 
And I want to invite you to join with me as we walk that path together and discover what exactly it looks like to be on a journey that in, involves blossoming faith. Two themes emerge as we travel on this pathway together. The first theme is this. We want to begin with blossoming faith itself. Blossoming faith itself. One of the, the first things that new followers of Christ learn is the importance of faith. I would say the importance of biblical faith. But learning about faith is not only for new believers. Learning about faith is something that each of us learn throughout our Christian lives. As we continue down the path in the Christian journey, we learn about faith. I remember one of the first lessons I learned about faith happened when I was about eight or nine years old. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is the verse that, that stood out to me. Now, faith, as the King James puts it, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But in Hebrews eleven six, the author continues. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Most of you are familiar with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, where he instructs, We walk by what? By faith, not by sight. The Apostle Peter, who you are well aware of his foibles and his struggles and his propensity to put his foot in his mouth and chop the ear off a soldier. We'll learn about that later. He said this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with great joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so you see that learning about faith, being nurtured in the faith, is something that continues for the remainder of our Christian lives and on the Christian journey. But I want to ask in particular today, what is it in this narrative? What is it in this story that leads to the blossoming of one's faith? Three, th three particular things emerge in particular as we look at this first broad category of blossoming faith. Some of this may come as a bit of a surprise to you. The first thing that, that boosts our faith is what I would call the foreknowledge of Jesus. The foreknowledge of Jesus. Look at, look at this with me in verse 18. You recall that the context here, verse 17, Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That is, if you obey me, you will receive blessing. I learned early on in the Christian life that, that obeying Jesus is where we need to be. Obeying Jesus brings fulfillment. It's where we need to be in the center of God's will. But Jesus continues here in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. Remember, he is with his 12 disciples in this small room. And once he says that, that the, the pathway to blessing is obedience, he says something that may have thrown the disciples off a bit. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. As we discover just a, a few important lessons about the foreknowledge of, Jesus, foreknowledge of Jesus, I want you to see this very important lesson. Jesus knows who he has chosen. That's exactly what he says in verse 18. He knows every boy and every girl and every man and every woman who will walk on the pathway of obedience that he describes in verse 17. He also knows that there will be one in this group at this point in this historical story. He realizes that one of these men will not walk on that pathway to blessing. I would argue this is one of the reasons, this is one of the many reasons in the Word of God why we can say that Jesus possesses exhaustive divine foreknowledge about everything in the universe. Jesus knows everything about your life. He knows everything you will do tomorrow, next week, next year, and on through the rest of your lives. Jesus knows 
everything. He has exhaustive foreknowledge about our lives. Hold your finger in John chapter 13, if you would, and go to a really a, a classic passage. You often wonder when a pastor says it's a classic passage, does that mean the other passage is not classic? You know what I mean. It's a popular passage in Psalm chapter 139, if you turn there with me. Psalm 139. And in a few short words, we see that the living God has what we're calling exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Psalm chapter 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I, I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where should I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You get the the point here that, that God has divine exhaustive foreknowledge about everything and about every one. You see, Jesus knows everything about the universe. In John chapter 13, he's limited to a very specific event. That is, he tells the disciples, 11 of you will walk on that path I described in verse 17. It's the, the path of obedience where you will receive blessing throughout your life. But he says, as he looks around the room, one of you will not walk on that path. And really what he is saying through the back door is one of you will go to hell. One of you will go to hell. In Psalm 147, the Bible says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I think you would agree with me if the the living God has numbered and named all the stars, He certainly knows in this event which individual numbered among the 12 will fail to follow him. Indeed, as we will see, he knows the one who will betray him. Let me build on this idea that Jesus has exhaustive, definite foreknowledge about all events and all people. I would say that Jesus has comprehensive foreknowledge about the free actions of people. There's a mouthful. The Lord Jesus Christ has comprehensive foreknowledge about the free actions of people. I talk to the young people a lot in messages. Maria, could I pick on you just a little bit? Okay, I knew you'd like that. Did you know that Jesus knows what Maria will have for breakfast on Thursday? Maria, do you know what you'll have for breakfast on Thursday? Isn't that interesting? But Jesus knows what Maria will have for breakfast on Thursday. Josh, Jesus knows what what you'll have for lunch next Friday. He knows everything down to the, the smallest detail. He knows who these young people will grow up and eventually marry. He knows the young men who they will marry. He knows the young women, who the men that they will marry. He knows where you will live. He knows the, 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 the occupation that you will spend the remainder of your days engaged in that occupation. Jesus has comprehensive foreknowledge about all things. A theologian of the 20th century, a man who had a a great deal of influence, his name is Louis Burkhoff, he said this, God has decreed all things, and he has decreed them with their causes and conditions in the exact order in which they come to pass. And his foreknowledge of future things, and that includes what Maria will have for breakfast on Tuesday, and also of contingent events rests on his decree. So you see that in order to have a blossoming faith, it's, it's fundamentally important, as we see from this passage, that we recognize and affirm the foreknowledge of Jesus. 
Secondly, I want you to see that the fulfillment of Scripture is something that contributes to what we're calling the blossoming of our faith. In verse 18, read it again with me. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But then he says something else that is very interesting. He says, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Nathan, if we could go from the foreknowledge of Jesus now to the fulfillment of Scripture. And we see here at the latter part of verse 18 that the Lord Jesus Christ indicates the Scripture will be fulfilled. And then he cites from Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. I'll read it to you. Even my close friend, who do you suppose this close friend is? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You might have the same question that I had at this point. How can Jesus, because I, I, if I'm going to back out of this for a moment, most of you would admit Jesus has comprehensive foreknowledge of all things. But here's the question that will get many of you thinking. How can Jesus predict with 100% accuracy what his free creatures will do? That is to say, if that's got you thinking, if Jesus is certain that a free creature will perform a specific action, how can we be so certain that that action is free? Let me ask it this way. If God has ordained that Maria has Fruit Loops on Tuesday morning and she doesn't have a choice to eat anything other than Fruit Loops, how can we affirm with Jesus that that decision is free? Do you see the, the problem this, this can pose? Well, the answer lies in the Word of God. There are two things that we must affirm, and I want to show you this diagram that will help us to make sense of this. The first thing we must affirm is that that creatures make free, uncoerced decisions. The creatures make free, uncoerced decisions. And if we have that, that etched in our minds that we as creatures make decisions that are uncoerced, that is, no one is twisting my arm to do what I need to do, I make that choice freely. But we also affirm that Jesus, as we've already argued, has foreordained all things. Can we look at that on the screen? We all make free decisions. We, as Jonathan Edwards argued 300 years ago, we choose according to our strongest inclination. That's helped me an awful lot. We do what we love the most. Whenever you make a decision, ask yourself, self? Why did I do that? Well, because you chose according to your strongest inclination. And so if we embrace that we are free creatures who make free, uncoerced decisions, then we say, Jesus has ordained everything that comes to pass. And theologians, as theologians do, love to invent terminology, sometimes terminology that is not directly found in Scripture, but teaches a biblical concept. If you struggle with theological words that are not in Scripture, turn your attention to a word like Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere found in Scripture, but the idea, or better yet, the truth of the Trinity is all over the Word of God. The same holds true with this particular theological term. It's the term, if we could look at it, called compatibilism. Theologians have labeled this particular doctrinal reality compatibilism. Some of you have heard me uh, go on and on about compatibilism. I usually do this with my hands. What my hands mean is this. We as the creatures make free decisions. Jesus has foreordained everything that comes to pass. And somehow, in the mind of God, they are compatible. They work out. You say, what if I do something I don't want to do? God made me do it. Well, remember, we make free decisions. Those decisions are uncoerced. Whenever you decide to do something, you do it because you want to do it. Good, bad, indifferent, or evil. But needless to say, that comes together in God's sovereign economy. That's what theologians call compatibilism. 
Randy Alcorn is a man who has had really quite an influence on my life. Uh, You'll recall several several weeks ago we did a study on um, biblical stewardship. And probably the best resource outside of Scripture that I could get my hands on was the work of Randy Alcorn. Well, Randy Alcorn writes on more than biblical stewardship. He writes on a host of issues, and this is one that has his attention and it has mine as well. Here's what he says. The evils done by God's creatures are their choices. The evil done by God's creatures are their choices, not his. He chooses to permit evil and could have prevented them, but he doesn't cause them. He is not the author of evil. Nonetheless, his creatures' wrong choices exist within his decree and the unlimited circle of his sovereignty, and they don't defeat his ultimate purpose and plan. He could have chosen not to permit them, and his permission reflects both purpose and plan. Indeed, he uses at least some of the creature's disobedience, and we will see that in our passage, if not all of it, to accomplish his plan. You say, did I hear that correctly? That God uses our disobedience to accomplish his plan? That's exactly what he says. And that's exactly what this passage of scripture teaches us. As we see that Judas will be the one. Judas Iscariot will be the one who will betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will set forth a chain reaction that will ultimately send the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. As we look at this diagram, I want you to remember something, something that Wayne Grudem taught me many years ago, not personally, but through reading his his book, Systematic Theology. He says this, free acts are foreordained. Free acts are foreordained. That is, whatever I do, freely has been foreordained by God. Now, some of you may be thinking ahead, which is good. You say, what if I do something that is sinful? Has that been foreordained by God? And the answer would be yes. But remember this, that God is praiseworthy for every act that he foreordains. But creatures, when they commit sin, are blameworthy. The creature is blameworthy. And you think about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, because what I just said, many people struggle with. They say, Pastor, I I can't fit that together, so let me make sense of it. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, I think we would all agree this was the most evil event that ever happened in all of human history. An innocent man was brutally murdered on that bloody cross. Can we all agree that was the worst thing, the worst travesty, the worst sin anyone could ever commit? Yet, God foreordained that sin. Why? So that you and I would be recipients of the grace and the mercy of God that was demonstrated in the cross work and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is the fulfillment of Scripture. This is the second way this passage helps to build our faith. We have the foreknowledge of Jesus. We have the fulfillment of Scripture. And then in verses 19 and 20, I want you to look briefly at future events. Future events. He says it like this in verse 19. I am telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see, Jesus has a a specific reason here in verse 19 for telling his disciples about an event which is soon to take place. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you will believe that I am who I say I am. When I read this, I thought to myself, this is the stuff of robust faith. 
Because there will come a time, as we look further into the Gospel of John, starting in John chapter 18, when Judas will actually betray Jesus. And the disciples will remember this moment, and their faith will be instructed. Their faith will be inspired. Their faith will be built. And they will, as Jesus prophesied, they will believe that he was who he says he was. You see, this episode builds a a robust faith as the disciples also will soon receive the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises to send. So as the disciples look back, as they look in the rearview mirror, as it were, their, their faith is strengthened. Their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ grows. That is to say, looking back helps to build our faith. Today in Veritas, I shared a story that I haven't shared in quite some time about how Doreen and I first got involved in the ministry. And I won't recount that story now, but 25 years ago, you, you look back at how we made a few decisions that led us to a particular ministry position. And then some, some pain and suffering happened in that ministry. And, and in order to maintain my personal integrity, I left my home church. A home church that I was baptized in. It's the home church where I believe the gospel. It's a home church where I I knew a lot of people and had lots of good relationships. We walked away from that, went to LeGrand for 11 years. And then through a season, a, a chain of events, we ended up coming to Christ Fellowship. And there's 25 years of the steel history in about four sentences. And you look back and you can see, you can see the sovereign hand of God through the good times and through the bad times. You see how God orchestrates events and he uses your free decisions, the good decisions, the bad decisions and the evil decisions to to bring his sovereign will to pass. You think about these three things which are designed to make your faith blossom. When you consider the foreknowledge of Jesus your faith will be supercharged. You see, the foreknowledge of Jesus reminds us that Jesus is sovereign over everything. When you consider, secondly, the fulfillment of Scripture, your faith, once again, is supercharged. Fulfilled prophecy reminds you that God is true. Fulfilled prophecy reminds you that God's word is true. You go back to the Psalms. You go back to Zechariah, you back to Micah, you go back to Isaiah and see how the fulfillment of prophecy in the days of the New Testament come to pass and your faith blossoms, your faith is strengthened. When you consider future events that come to pass, you look back on the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ and these serve to strengthen and supercharge your faith. This is a critical lesson. A critical lesson that we learn on the pathway to blossoming faith. But the pathway to blossoming faith is not always, as most of you know, a bed of roses. The pathway to blossoming faith is often paved with pain and suffering. And so I want to have you look with me, starting in verse 21, at what I like to entitle, The Brutal Betrayal. We want to look not only at the blossoming faith, we want to look at the brutal betrayal. Look first at verse 21 with me. After saying these things, and really what John is referring to is the things that Jesus described to his disciples, that one of you will not walk that path of blessing. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. I want you, if you like to write in your Bible, mark the word troubled. It's a really, really important word. It's a word that comes from a Greek word that means to be stirred up. It means to be distressed. It means to cause a riot. Some of you know that I, and I, I, I will not talk in specifics, but I went to an event a few days ago. And the things that I saw at that rather large public event were deeply, deeply troubling to me. I shared with a few of you that as I sat at this event and I watched people on my left and on my right and as I heard people speak and as I heard music play and I, I saw a whole array of, of uh, different things happening, the emotions within me began to swell up and I, I, I actually thought I was going to start to cry. And the reason? I was so troubled. 
And so you might experience this when you go to a funeral. You might experience this when you go to a rally. You might experience this when you're, you're talking to a loved one and they, and they give you bad news. You can be troubled. In John chapter 11, verse 33, you recall that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he stood there with Mary, and the Bible says, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's the same word that emerges in John chapter 11 that we see in John chapter 13. It's interesting because the Germans have a word. The Germans have a word. It's the word, uh, I'll try my best to pronounce it, Anfektungen. I'm probably a little off. But the word, the German word means this. It means a, a sense of dread or alienation. You could say uh, to be intensely sad or to be intensely troubled. It's a sense of dread that Jesus was experiencing as he is about to unfold that one among the twelve will betray him. I would argue this morning that the fact that Jesus was troubled should actually bring comfort to your soul. He is not a savior who is aloof. He is a savior who understands and has experienced every aspect of your pain. He understands our loneliness. He understands our grief. He understands our suffering. He understands our despair. He understands what it feels like to have this desire to just throw in the towel. It's too hard. But we know he never did that, of course, because the Bible says he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has experienced persecution. He experienced personal loss. He even experienced the death of close friends, people he loved. And so here we find him in this episode with the disciples, troubled at the prospect of betrayal. Look with me at three roles as this drama plays out. First, I want you to see that Jesus envisions the betrayal. He envisions the betrayal and recognize that the act of betrayal means to, to give someone away. It means to give someone up. It means to hand someone over to the authorities. And he does something fascinating in my mind. He uses a simple morsel of bread and a chalice of wine as an object lesson. It would have been very easy for Jesus just to say, hey, you're the guy that's going to betray me. It would have been just as easy for him to take the disciples off by themselves and say, I want to tell you who the guy is who will betray me. He doesn't do any of that. He uses a piece of bread and a chalice of wine. I want you to imagine with me the tension that must have filled the room when Jesus uttered the words, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Notice how the scene unfolds in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of what he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus envisions the betrayal here. Secondly, I want you to see in verse 28 that Satan energizes the betrayal. Satan energizes the betrayal. Then after he had taken the morsel, the Bible says Satan entered into him. That is, Satan entered into Judas. And you ask, how does Satan energize the betrayal? Well, he blinds Judas to the truth. He deceives Judas. He manipulates the mind of Judas. As Steve Lawson says, sin makes people stupid. And indeed it does. But Judas here, you have to see, is ultimately responsible for the sin he will do in a moment. Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. 
Finally, I want you to see not only that Jesus envisions the betrayal and Satan energizes the betrayal, but here Judas engages in the act of betrayal. See, the very act of betrayal, by definition, suggests that that two parties at one time trusted each other. These are men who who had a friendship with one another. These are men who walked together. Judas heard the teaching of Jesus. Judas saw Jesus perform miracles. He had been numbered among the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He was a friend. He was a trusted ally. And so when Judas conspires to commit treason against his friend, he commits a sin in his heart, a sin that would, as you well know, ultimately lead to the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. You may wonder, how can we say that Judas at this point engages in the act of betrayal? Because as you're you're tracing the story through the Gospel of John, here we sit in John chapter 13, but it won't be for many, many weeks, maybe months, for us to get to John chapter 18 where the actual betrayal takes place. How can we say that Judas engages in the act of betrayal? Would you hold your finger in John 13 and turn with me to James chapter 1? And we see how we can use the language of Judas actually engaging in the act of betrayal. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, keep Judas in mind here. The Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, the reason we can engage in the language that, that Judas is now involved in the act of betrayal is because he is, he is playing the sin out in his mind. Before he even receives the bag of money, he's envisioning what he will do for personal gain. He will receive the money, he will betray Jesus, and he knows, he knows this will lead to the arrest and the ultimate death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the act of betrayal is a, is a vicious breach of trust. And this is exactly what we'll see takes place beginning in John chapter 18. To bring this back to, to home, let me say that betrayal can happen right here and right now. It can happen at the job. It can happen in a home. It can happen in the church. And I'll say this, if you've never been betrayed, and some of you have not, uh, brace yourself. Because it is likely to happen. But the betrayal that takes place in this story is the most brutal betrayal of all. Why? Because Jesus, the God-man, the one who loves perfectly, is betrayed. The Jesus who is the God-man, who is the best friend any of us could ever have, is betrayed by one who claimed to be trustworthy. Jesus, the one who is always trustworthy, who has always been trustworthy and will always be trustworthy, is betrayed. But there's something lurking below the surface in this story that would be very easy to miss. I want you to look as we see the the beginning seeds of betrayal in Judas. I want you to look with me at the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus is no stoic. We, we saw very clearly in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled at the prospect of not only the betrayal of where also this was eventually going to lead. It was going to take him to the cross. This would lead to the cross where he would suffer and bear the weight of sin and bear the almighty wrath of God. And so what can we learn from Jesus What is lurking under the surface that we can apply to our lives? Notice first, he never minimizes sin. He never minimizes sin. Never once do we hear him saying to Judas, oh, it's okay, no problem, right? And do we not do that sometimes in our lives when someone sins against us and we just say, oh, it's no problem? 
And so Jesus never minimizes sin. He deals with sin directly. Second, I want you to see that Jesus never loses sight of his mission. Put yourself, if you could, in Jesus' shoes. Here he is. He has loved perfectly. He has been totally trustworthy. He has taught his disciples faithfully. They have engaged in, in, in this relationship with one another that was literally unsurpassable. But he never loses sight of his mission. He never allows the impending betrayal of Judas to derail the mission where he would go to the cross and die for sinners. Third, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a huge one for us, he never gives in to bitterness despite the betrayal that was soon to come. Before he is betrayed, we find that Jesus is God-centered. In the midst of betrayal, we find a God-centered Jesus. And after the betrayal, we will see in John 18, we find a God-centered Jesus. And finally, I want you to see that he always glorifies the Father. In light of all these horrible things that are surrounding him, Jesus has a heart of compassion, He has a heart of kindness, a heart of meekness, and a heart of humility, despite the impending betrayal of Judas. What about you? If I could talk personally to you this morning, who has betrayed you? I can tell you this. After almost 25 years of ministry, I have experienced personally betrayal. I have experienced, and it it sounds so counterintuitive to say, that I have experienced betrayal. I have sat for hours and hours and hours with people who would say, I have your back. And then they stab you in the back. It's one of the most painful things that a human being can ever deal with. For someone in ministry to betray your trust. The world tells us when someone betrays you, get even. Fight back. Get bitter. Do what you need to do. Claim your territory. But I would argue with the word of God that there is a better way. There is actually a much better way that will lead to growth and strength and character. The Bible says it this way. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So says Romans chapter five, verse three. And so you remember that Jesus now is troubled, troubled at the prospect of being betrayed. And since you remember he is fully man, the betrayal that he is about to experience cuts him like a knife, just like it cuts us. It wounds the Lord Jesus Christ like it wounds us. It hurts the Lord Jesus Christ like it hurts us. I believe that the example of Jesus here teaches us a critical lesson that we can apply right here and right now. And the truth point is this, that the, the pathway to blossoming faith is often paved with brutal Betrayal. I love Hebrews 12 where the writer says that, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The fact of the matter is that you and I will continue to experience betrayal. We will experience loss. We will experience those dark days when we feel like throwing in the towel. And my plea with you is that we would weather the storms that God sovereignly allows into our lives. Even the storms that are filled with betrayal. May our faith blossom. And it's certainly true that this, this pathway, as I've already indicated, will be filled with pain and much suffering. 
But my prayer is that this pathway would be overshadowed, that we would be filled with blessing, that you and I as the people of God would respond like Jesus responded with a heart that desires to please the Father, with a heart that is faithful to the Father, that as Jesus maintained his, his rock-solid allegiance to his mission, that we would maintain our rock-solid allegiance to our mission, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. Father, what, a, what an amazing story. Uh, to see all that your son endured, a man who was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, never a, a bad thought, never a sinful inclination. Yet we recognize, as this passage teaches, that Jesus was troubled, not only at the prospect of betrayal, but at the prospect of hanging on a cross to pay for our sins on that cross. God, today we want to reaffirm our love for you. We reaffirm our love for the gospel. And we reaffirm our commitment to hold true to the mission, to, to glorify you, the living God, and to enjoy you forever. God, I pray a special prayer for anyone who has had a friend and a loved one or an associate or even a family member who said, I'm with you. I have your back. You can trust me. You can count on me but then stab that dear person in the back. God, I pray you'd prevent bitterness from rising. I pray that you'd, you'd, you'd prevent uh, anything, any kind of sin, sinful inclinations to arise in that person. Rather, I pray that they would trust you, that your purposes are good. And even though we admit that we can't figure out how all these things work out, we recognize that you do work out all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So may we, as we sing, have a God-centered faith. May we have God-centered resolve. May you encourage the people of God here in this place. First, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. I hope that you are struck with how Jesus was troubled at the prospect of betrayal. Can you imagine being in that room knowing that a guy sit, sitting just a few, way, few, few feet away from you is the one who would hand you over to the authorities leading to your ultimate death. Now, a bit of perspective before we wrap things up. In Psalm 41, once again, the prophecy says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me, you say, Wow, that was written hundreds of years before it actually happened. Yet Jesus maintained the, the attitude that he did. How about this? Jesus knew from all eternity that Judas Iscariot would sell him down the river leading to his crucifixion. What was his attitude like? Always God-centered. May we do the same. May we do the same by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the beauty of the gospel. We recognize, as we affirm often in this place, that uh, we can't do anything apart from grace. Uh, there is no good or right inclination that we can have or any kind word we can utter apart from grace. And so today, thank you for sovereign grace. Thank you for granting us the ability to believe Jesus. And I pray for anyone who is struggling right now with being betrayed as your son was betrayed. May they recognize that there is a road ahead, a path of blossoming faith, albeit a path that may be paved with betrayal along the way. May we follow the example of your son. May we learn from his, his modeling, his example. May we have great and God-centered resolve, all because of the grace that you've given us in Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.